So today we're going to look at the uh, final event in the work of Christ, up until now the eight events that we've looked at <clears throat> so far have been shown to uh, have profound significance for all believers, and that's certainly true of the final event, uh, which is the second coming of Christ. This is the uh, obviously the one event that still remains future, and it's the one event that all true believers pray for, certainly should eagerly be looking forward to. Paul says this in Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That was true 2,000 years ago. It definitely should be true today, especially considering um, how corrupt and sinful the world has become. Uh, we should absolutely be eagerly awaiting his return, looking forward to his return to bring justice, to bring reward, and to establish his kingdom on earth. So before we get started, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to come together this morning to worship you, to learn from your word, and just pray that as we uh, look into your word today, uh, what you have revealed about the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ to establish his kingdom on earth, I pray that we would be encouraged, pray that we would be challenged, pray that we would even be rebuked where we have uh, fallen short or maybe in error. And pray, Lord, that uh, you would apply the word to our hearts to transform us into Christ-likeness, to equip us to be better servants in your kingdom, better ministers of the gospel, and that we might bring greater glory to you. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So first, uh, we're going to look at one passage that addresses the rapture, which we believe is the resurrection of believers, dead and alive, prior to the great tribulation, and it is related to his uh, coming, his second coming. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, if you want to turn there. <clears throat> 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And make sure you pick up uh, both of those um, handouts this morning. The second one you see is a, an excerpt from an article, a uh, Gospel Coalition article, basically. Uh, it addresses the second coming of Christ, but what I gave you back there is um, basically application uh, based on the things that we understand and learn about the second coming. All right, so 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the situation here is that uh, some of the Thessalonian believers had died, and there was an expectation that Christ would be returning in their lifetime. <clears throat> um, they were looking forward to that. They were anticipating it. But some had died 
So now they're concerned. Uh, the remaining believers were concerned. Apparently, they were informed about the return of Christ, the day uh, of the Lord or the judgment day that's mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3. But they were unaware of the taking up of believers that would precede that. So Paul reassures them that Jesus will resurrect the dead first, and then those who are alive will also be caught up to meet the Lord. Nobody's going to miss out. Okay, The dead and those who are still living will all experience this awesome event. Um, but let me address one other question briefly. Anyway, so that's, that's the rapture. Um, what happens to the believer when they die? <clears throat> or when she dies. Um, scripture doesn't go into uh, a great detail about that, but it does make it pretty clear that when our physical bodies die, our souls, or our spirits immediately go into the presence of the Lord. Paul says in Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And you also have the promise of Christ to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, 42 and 43. And he said, the thief says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now that fact that believers who die are immediately with the Lord is certainly one of the great comforts that we have as Christians. It enables us to grieve not as the world grieves, but with hope and even with joy. So now this period before Christ returns, when departed believers' bodies are in the ground, their spirits are with Christ, is referred to by theologians as the intermediate state, and that means it's not permanent. Um, it's not the way we were designed to live, with body and soul separated, uh, this was brought about by the fall when death entered into creation. It was never supposed to be this way, and it won't always be this way. Um, God designed us to be a unified body and soul, body and spirit. We were designed to inhabit the earth, not heaven, and at the same time to be in communion with him. So with his return and our physical resurrection, Body and soul will be reunited to live forever in the new heaven and earth, uh, when heaven and earth are united. Now, some people uh, think that it's possible that in this intermediate state, we will receive an interim body, and that may be what John is seeing in Revelation 6, uh, verses 9 and 11. It says, when uh, he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So maybe referring to that, you know, those individuals who departed, given an interim uh, body, I don't know, maybe. But we do know that we will be resurrected physically, uh, reunited uh, with glorified bodies, uh, glorified body and soul, and we will be inhabiting the new heaven and new earth. And get into that a little bit more later. So now let's focus back on <clears throat> actual return of Christ. First of all, the expression, the second coming or the second advent, uh, it's not actually used in Scripture. 
Jesus does talk about his future return in glory, and it is spoken of by Paul, James, Peter, and John. And Revelation 19 gives a very detailed picture uh, of Christ's glorious return. So, second coming, advent, not used, but some of the primary Greek terms that are used to refer to uh, his coming, and I'm sure I'll get uh, the pronunciation of these Greek terms uh, incorrect. Um, Mark can give you the proper pronunciation later on. But the first one is parousia, then epiphania, or epiphania, apocalypsis, and those are all nouns. Those three are nouns, and then there's one verb that's used. It's erkomai. Uh, parousia is the most commonly used noun in the New Testament. Um, refer to the second coming. You see it in Matthew 24, uh, 3, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, and 4, 15, James 5, 7 through 8, 2 Peter 3, 4, and 12, and many others. Uh, basic meaning of parousia is presence or arrival, as generally used um, to refer to, to someone who is coming to be present or um, yeah, coming to be present as opposed to being absent, physically absent, uh, did become the primary term uh, in the early church and in Scripture um, to refer to the second coming. Um, you see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 26, where Paul explains the future hope that believers have of resurrection uh, at the coming, uh, the coming, the parousia of Christ. Jesus uses it to refer to his return at the end, uh, the coming of Christ, the end um, of the age. And that's in the Olivet Discourse. Disciples come to him when he's sitting on the Mount of Olives, and they come to ask him the question, tell us when will these things be, and what what will be the sign of your coming, your parousia, uh, and of the end of the age. That's Matthew 24, 3. And then Jesus Uh, lays out a couple of signs, things to look for that will precede his coming. And then he says in Matthew 24, 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming, the parousia of the Son of Man. Then again in verses 36 through 39, um, where he compares his coming, his parousia, to the days of Noah. And then the other term, epiphania, means appearing, and that refers to his return in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, in 1 Timothy 6.14, Titus 2.13, and others. And then the term apocalypsis means revelation or revealing, and some of the passages where that term is used, 1 Corinthians 1.7, 1 Peter 1.7, and 4.13, and those refer to the visible nature of his return. Then the verb Erkomai means come, and it's used to refer to Jesus coming in the clouds with power and great glory. See that in Matthew 24, 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Also Mark 13, 26, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and that's the word erkomai. And uh, there's also other terms and phrases that refer to his return, the second coming, um, the day, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ, the day of God, 
Uh, all of those refer to his second coming. And um, that's some of the language that's used to refer to Christ's second coming. Okay, so now I want to look at some of the characteristics of his second coming. And I think those are in the notes. First of all, uh, when will the second coming take place? Well, <clears throat> it is unpredictable. At the same time, it's imminent, which means unpredictable. Nobody knows the exact time and date, okay? At the same time, it is near, or it is about to happen. And when it comes, it will happen quickly, essentially the meaning of imminent. We can't know the exact date and time, but Scripture does make it clear. Jesus makes it clear that there are some things that have to take place before his return. You see this in Matthew 24. Uh, one thing in particular is that the gospel has to be preached worldwide, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, the Great Commission has to be fulfilled, which is why we need to be actively sharing the gospel, sending out missionaries to the ends of the earth. And then a couple of other things have to take place. These are also enumerated in chapter 24. Uh, the abomination of desolation, the man of lawlessness, has to stand in the holy place. That's Matthew 24, 15. And that's referring to the Antichrist, who apparently sets up an idol, and then he sets himself up, himself up as God in the temple. That's during the tribulation. And that's from 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4, and Revelation 13, 14, and 15. And then the great tri tribulation has to take place. That's Matthew 24, 16 through 29. And then Christ will return. So those three events primarily. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 30 through 31, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven <clears throat> to the other. So those three things uh, certainly have to happen, but when those will occur, nobody can accurately determine. Can't predict when Jesus will return, even though lots of people have tried throughout the ages, but they always got it wrong. They always failed in their predictions. Um, Jesus said in Acts 1-7, it is not for you to know times or seasons uh, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for us to know. Uh, rather, his disciples were to receive power <clears throat> from the Holy Spirit and be witnesses uh, for him to the world. So the counsel to us is don't, don't try to figure out the date of his return. Um, there will be prophecies that have to be fulfilled, and we should be paying attention to what's going on in the world, paying attention for those signs so that we're not caught unawares. Uh, but regardless of when the rapture takes place, regardless of when the man of lawlessness appears, the Antichrist, abomination of desolation, desecrating the temple, regardless of when the Great Tribulation or the Battle of Armageddon occur, we are to be busy about doing what Christ has called us to do. We live in light of the possibility that Christ could come back within our lifetime. That is a very real possibility. So 
be witnesses for Christ, preach the gospel to the whole world, make disciples, and pursue holiness. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Peter speaks of the second coming and what we should be doing as well. He says, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of godliness, holiness and godliness? That's 2 Peter 3, 11. Okay? So, unpredictable and imminent. Second thing is that Christ's return will also be triumphant. <clears throat> it will be triumphant in unimaginable power, glory, and judgment. Uh, Revelation 19, 11 through 21, gives an incredible picture of that return. And it's a description. Uh, when we read it, you know, it's really just a glimpse of what it will actually be like. It's the sermon that I preached on uh, January 1st, I believe it was, this year. Um, you might go back and listen to that if you want more detail on this passage. I'm just going to read through it right now, though. So, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse." And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Christ's return will be in absolute and total victory and righteous judgment. In his first coming, he came as a helpless baby in a manger. He lived humbly. He was gentle and lowly. But when he returns, he will come as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He will come as the commander of the armies of heaven, and he will come to make war and conquer. 
When he returns, every knee in heaven on earth and under the earth will kneel to his sovereign majesty, his power, his authority, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will come as the true and righteous judge to reward the saints, all believers, and he will come to judge and punish the unbelieving wicked. Revelation eleven eighteen says, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Now, <clears throat> Paul tells the Thessalonians that before the day of the Lord, before his coming and judgment, that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, would appear, but Christ wipes him and his rebellion out with a breath. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 10. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. So, even though this individual, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is empowered and directed by Satan, it only takes the appearing of Christ and the breath of Christ for him to be completely destroyed. And that's also depicted in the passage from Revelation 19. So Christ's return is the day when, according to Paul in his letter to the Romans, God judges uh, the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, by Christ Jesus. And when he comes, Jesus will declare final victory over death, sin, and Satan and all the forces of evil. He will gather all his people to himself. He will establish his righteous rule and reign over all the nations and over all peoples. Um, and that will be in his earthly millennial kingdom, which then transitions into the eternal kingdom. He will make all wrongs right. He will rule with a rod of iron so that his will is done on earth um, just as it's done in heaven. And that's why we eagerly await the coming of the Lord. His return will be triumphant. <clears throat> his return will also be personal and visible. When Scripture talks about the second coming of Christ, uh, the focus is on him. The focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.8 says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
his appearing is literally the appearance of him. His return is not going to be some mysterious, secret, spiritual return or the spirit of Jesus living on in the heart, uh, hearts of his disciples. That's not at all what is being referenced here. The same person who ascended is the one who will return, Acts 1.11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. When Jesus first came, very few people were aware of it. Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, a couple of shepherds, um, some wise men from the east, Anna, Simeon in the temple later on. Uh, but when he comes again, it's going to be very different. Sinclair Ferguson says about his return, Then what was veiled will be fully revealed. Then the curtain that was partially drawn back at his transfiguration will be removed completely. When he comes in his glory and with the Father's angels, this same Jesus, Jesus himself, will be seen and known as he truly is in all of his majesty. This one, the eternal Son of the Father who became incarnate, was crucified and buried, rose and ascended, and now reigns. This person, the God-man forever incarnate and no other, will come personally to reign in glory. <clears throat> so his return is personal and it will be visible. His return will not be some, said before, some invisible spiritual return, which is a claim that the Jehovah's Witnesses have made. They say that he came invisibly in 1914. And of course, that didn't happen. It's also what uh, full preterists believe. They say that uh, this happened in A.D. 70 uh, with the destruction of the temple. Preterists say that Jesus uh, came spiritually or spiritually accompanied and secretly directed the Roman armies in that destruction of the temple. Uh, that's certainly not how the New Testament describes his coming. Those Greek terms that I mentioned earlier, parousia, epiphania, apocalypsis, mean coming, revealing, or appearing. All the terms indicate a visible return. And that's absolutely stated in Revelation 1-7. <clears throat> Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Every eye will see him. Now, I have no idea how that's possible, okay? Scripture just says it will happen. So, Scripture says every eye will see him, every eye will see him. And the more we understand about the, the power and the ability of God, the one who brought all things into being from nothing, simply by willing it and speaking it into existence, should be clear that if God wants this to happen, it'll happen. Okay? Not, not too difficult for God. We also have to humbly recognize that as finite creatures, there's a whole lot about God and his work, his ways, that we can't comprehend. We'll never be able to wrap our, our brains around it. We may understand more someday when we're glorified, uh, but for now, it's enough that, to know that God uh, reveals this and that it will happen. Everyone will witness the event. Uh, no one will miss out. No one will not see Christ's return. 
Wherever you are, wherever you are, <clears throat> you will witness the event. And no one will have any doubt about what's happening. Probably be the most incredible event since the creation. Every eye will see him. So his return um, will also be transformative. When Christ returns in his glory, believers, those who are in Christ, his saints will be transformed into his likeness. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This transformation is taking place now through the process of sanctification, but at his return, when we are resurrected, it will be completed. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 through 52. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. And again, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 14 through 17, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus Christ, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. So, Death for uh, the believer, it may be difficult, it may be painful, it may be an ordeal that we have to go through, but remember that Christ has removed the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Christ has transformed death into the gateway to life. Life that is abundant, life that is eternal, life in his presence. We fall asleep in our bodies uh, while our spirits enter into the presence of Christ. Paul says our bodies rest in the grave until the return of Christ and our resurrection, our physical resurrection. But they are only asleep. When he returns, he will awaken our bodies. He will resurrect and transform our bodies doesn't matter how decomposed, how disintegrated they have become. doesn't matter if you were burned up and your ashes were spread over the land and sea. won't matter if you were eaten by wild animals and become fertilizer. Christ will regenerate. He will recompose. He will reintegrate uh, our bodies <clears throat> and transform them so that they will be like his glorified body. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, but our citizenship in, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So not only will our dead and decomposed bodies <clears throat> and physically still living bodies be transformed, but all of creation 
all of creation, all of heaven and earth will also be transformed when Christ returns. And creation looks forward to that transformation. Romans 8, 19 through 23, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So creation itself wasn't guilty of sin, but it was affected by it, it was corrupted by Adam's sin and the fall. And when Christ returns, all of creation will be freed from that corruption. And then the final and ultimate transformation takes place, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The return of Christ will transform, that is certain, and it should inspire in all believers great confidence, great hope, should inspire the greatest joy, first of all in the here and now, but also in the future return of Christ. Okay, so again, uh, his return will be unpredictable and imminent. It will be triumphant in power, glory, and judgment. It'll be personal. It'll be visible. It'll be transformative. All of those things what we have to look forward to. Now, I want to close with this excerpt from this Gospel Coalition article on the second coming, implications for the believer as a good application for us. The second coming of Christ is a necessary feature of the Gospel message. Christ's first coming brought salvation through his death and resurrection, but his second coming will bring about the resurrection of our bodies, which is the final goal and hope of our salvation. The hope we have of his return is more than an addendum to the gospel. It gives us the confidence of his victory and the salvation of our mortal bodies from sin once and for all to have a glorified, resurrected body that is pure, immortal, and incorruptible. <clears throat> Second coming then has implications for how we live our lives from day to day. Paul sums it up well when he writes, <clears throat> training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Waiting for his return is not passive. It is an act of purifying of our lives in the pursuit of holiness, in readiness for our Lord. John tells us that as children of God, we will be like Jesus when he appears, 
and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is, just as he is pure. To watch with readiness for his return means we conduct our lives in such a way as to please him rather than be ashamed when he appears. Another implication uh, of his return is that we can trust him to judge and make all things right when he comes. No matter what trials, sufferings, or challenges we face here, now it's only temporary. We are to refrain from seeking revenge or judging people because we can entrust that true and worthy judge. We can because we can trust that the true and worthy judge will deal justice according to truth. Finally, any delay in the Lord's return is to allow more time for people to come to repentance and final salvation. There will be no hope of salvation for the lost after Jesus comes. Today is the day of salvation. It is imperative that we share the gospel and hope of salvation in Christ by grace through faith. And that is the second coming of Christ. Any questions? David. Yeah, we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. We are in the end times. It was church age, but That, that. So, so you have these signs, okay, that Jesus lays out in Matthew 24 that are pretty clear, okay? So you want to know if we're actually in the Great Tribulation. Well, first of all, the Antichrist has to set himself up in the temple. The temple's not there. Um, I do not recommend that you read Hal Lindsey, Late Great Planet Earth came out back in the 70s when there was a huge focus when the Jesus movement got started back in the late 60s and 70s. Huge focus on eschatology and it was it was whack. You know, hornets were helicopters and things like that. But yeah. Any questions? Yeah. So how that takes place exactly, it's not clear. It is, it's, it's very clear. Not very clear. Um, so Michael Block, who's a professor, uh, he's no longer at Masters, um, but he was the professor of eschatology at uh, Masters Seminary for a long time. He talks about the fact that the Millennial Kingdom is like a preview and a transition into the eternal kingdom. So there will be things about the millennial kingdom that will be very much like the eternal kingdom when heaven and earth are united. But in the millennial kingdom, people will still die. People will still sin. Okay? People will be born. And uh, then there will be a great rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. And then 
transition into the eternal state. No, no, I mean, that's the uh, Battle of Armageddon is different from the rebellion that takes place at the end of the, at the end of the millennial kingdom. I mean, it doesn't really speak much about it, just that it's going to happen, it's like, boom, it's over with. I mean, that's pretty much true of, the, of Armageddon as well. Armies come and they're wiped out. The what? No. Not that I can think of off the top. Anything else? So I will recommend a really good book if you're interested in... Uh, the return of Christ, millennial kingdom, particularly, and that transition to the eternal state. It's a book called He Will Reign Forever by Michael Block. And it's basically a biblical theology of the kingdom from Genesis all the way to, to Revelation. Huh? V-L-A-C-H? Michael Block. V-L-A-C-H. So it's uh, being pre-trib, viewing the, the rapture as pre-tribulation. Um, it, it, it precedes the final coming of Christ, the ultimate coming of Christ. In the passage in Thessalonians, it says he descends and he takes the saints up to be with him. Uh, when you read Revelation 19... There's no language like that, as the saints are returning with him. And uh, he comes all the way to earth and establishes his kingdom. Um, there's, no, there's no talk of... Uh, so the church is addressed in the first three chapters of Revelation. After that, there's no mention of the church until the very end. Okay, but in like 16 chapters, de, you know, describing what happens during um, the tribulation, the only mention is of Israel. There's no mention of the church. So that would also indicate that the church is gone during the tribulation. Yeah, big picture idea, but it's not his final coming to establish, you know, his kingdom on earth. And to judge. So, and another, and so another argument for pre-trib uh, rapture is that with the establishment of, of the millennial kingdom, you have um, believers coming out of the tribulation who then are in the millennial kingdom. Well, they're not in glorified bodies. 
they're able to reproduce and they're able and their offspring sin. So that would that would argue against the idea that all of the saints, and that's the argument, post-trib rapture, believers are raptured at the end of the tribulation. Well, then who, who enters into the millennial kingdom? Because all unbelievers are wiped out. And the only people that enter the millennial kingdom are believers from, from the great tribulation. But if they're raptured at the end of the tribulation, they all have glorified bodies, so they can't reproduce. They're like the angels in heaven. Just, there's multiple arguments. Bam. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It it precedes the second coming. And I mean, it's it's kind of overall included in it. It precedes his his final coming and establishment of his kingdom on earth. Yeah, secret part and yeah. Yeah. That's one way to describe it. Anyway, that's it. Uh next week, make sure you guys uh come because uh next week uh we will everybody will be in here. Caleb is gonna do basically a summary and a recap of, of his teaching so that if you you know, you were in here for the last eight, nine weeks, um, you'll be able to at least get an overview of what was taught on, um, on his session. All right? All right, you're dismissed.